Well, welcome again to, I think it's week four now, of the sanctification class. And we've already been through a tremendous amount. Um, And today's focus is on how it all begins. But as you know, if you've been in classes that I've taught before, I like to do a recap to see where we've came and then where we're going to go. And so the first piece that I'm going to do is talk about what we talked about the first week. And this has probably been beating everyone's heads by now. But this is the part that we call class participation. <laughs> so on either side of this, what do we have? So we have some definitive moments in our Christian life, either now or future. So sanctification is the process we're talking about. So that's the gimme. But what's on either side here? Any volunteers? Glorification. Glorification. So we will be glorified. And first, importantly, not it's it's almost the most important thing, but everything is just as important is justification. 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 And it may be silly to go through this every single week. But it is so critically important because it's the foundation of how we frame every single conversation that we have in this class. And so that was what we covered the first week, that each of these are definitive moments. We have a definitive justification. We'll talk about definitive and progressive sanctification. We'll talk about, well, in the future, we have a definitive glorification when we're at the footsteps of the Father and we're fully glorified and all has come to fruition. So sanctification as the process overall of becoming holy, and we talked about this in the first week, that what is holy? I guess I'll I'll ask the question to the group. Not just moral character, but what else does holy, being holy, signify? Transcendence. Transcendence, that's true. That's a good description. Being set apart. Being set apart. That's the real critical piece is that being holy is also being set apart. And, you know, as... as first, set apart it, from what? Sorry. Yeah, set apart. Well, tell us. Set apart from what? Set apart from who we used to be. Yeah, set apart from who we used to be. Before Christ. Exactly, before Christ. And we're going to get to that because we're going to talk about particularly what Paul shares with us in Romans, in Romans 6, and we'll get to that a little bit later this morning. So that was the first week. The next week we moved into the work of God. And this was a lesson where we talked about sanctification as a work of God, and it's very explicitly Trinitarian. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the Father who plans and purposes our sanctification. We have the Son who dies for us and gives it to us. And we'll talk a little more about that today. And then we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps set that work of the inward transformation throughout our life. And so that's really the Trinitarian focus of sanctification. And if we go to the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, this was shared just a couple weeks ago, but I wanted to bring it up again because it really is such a clarifying statement. The question simply in the Larger Catechism is, what is sanctification? And it's defined as a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of his Spirit, 
applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance into life, and all other saving graces put into their heart, and those graces so stirred up, increased and strengthened, as they may as as that they may more and more die into sin and rise into the newness of life. And so really in this question you have everything encapsulated that we've talked about. That it's the work of God's grace, and the foundation of the world chosen to be holy, so there we have separate, separated, separated from, chosen to be holy, through the operation of the Spirit, as we talked about the Trinitarian work of sanctification, applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them, renewed to the whole image man after the image of God. And we talked a lot about that last week. So, it's the work of God. We have justification, sanctification, glorification, which we'll keep going back to week after week to frame the understanding of Scripture and the understanding of the process of sanctification. And then last week, Sheldon really nicely talked to us about looking at Jesus as our example, as our guide, as our image. They were made in the image of Christ, in the image of God. And so he went through several steps and several points and really, really clearly defined it. And if you have a chance to listen to that, I would recommend it because it was a really, really well done lesson. And so just a few salient points from that to kind of frame where we are today. So Christ is the pattern for what God is making us like. So if Christ is the pattern, then we can turn to him and understand throughout Scripture, throughout his image, throughout his life, what our mold is supposed to look like. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, so what does it mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image? There's a, many ways you could answer this. Eternal. Eternal. That's our glorification. We have that secured as believers, and our glorification were eternal. What else? That we're spirit. Spirit, absolutely. Certainly we have an image to follow. We have a moral character to follow in Christ's work. Um, <coughs> no one has to turn here, but if you want to, I'll just jot down the scriptures as I do it so you can... Um, write them down or turn to them if you'd like. Ephesians 4, 20-24. So that's the first. And in Ephesians 4, 20-24, it says, But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so we have this restorative work that is talked about throughout Scripture. And this is a, a really fantastic verse to think about that restorative work. That we're taking off that old self, as you said. What are we made holy from, set apart from our old self? We're conformed to the image of Christ, conformed to the image of the Son. We talked about last week the fruits of the Spirit. You guys can probably name these in Galatians 5. I don't even probably need to write them. What are some of the fruits of the Spirit that we hear in there and that we see worked out in the life of Christ and in the life of others? Gentleness. Gentleness. 
patience, kindness. kindness. These are love. I heard love as well. I think that's what it was. <laughs> exactly. So finally, Sheldon wrapped up by talking about how we can look to Jesus as our example. So we have the direct examples in Scripture. It's a big Bible. It's <laughs> moving the weight of this thing. We have the Scriptures. We can read the Gospels with the frame of that mind, noting Christ's action, noting Christ's character. And finally, prayer. We can pray that we'll respond to others the way that Christ did. Pray for wisdom in the moments. Pray for the fruit of the Spirit to really blossom in our hearts and minds. So that's where we've been. That's, and that's, that's already a lot about <laughs> sanctification. But I hope what you're seeing is that there is a definitive justification that's so inextricably linked to the rest of our Christian life. And we don't just remember our justification and then all of a sudden take off running. Everything is linked back to our justification, our union with Christ, and what that means. And we're going to talk some about that union with Christ today. So with that, with that long-winded intro of where we were, um, I'll pray for us, and then we can dive into... Uh, What we've got to talk about today uh, is where it all begins. So let us pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son, his death on the cross, that imputation, what it means to be united with Christ, to be adopted into your family by Christ's death on the cross, and how nothing that we can do can make us right with you and that it's only our Uh, faith and trust in Christ's death on the cross and that imputation that can bring us closer to you. Father, just may we understand more today about your love, your grace, about the process of sanctification. May we turn to the scriptures. May it be embedded in our hearts. May we be open and receptive and just give me the words to say that would be glorifying to you and truthful. And may we be encouraged, ultimately encouraged, at the end of the day, to go out and to um, to do uh, your will. Uh, be with those that are not with us, those that are sick, and those that are um, uh, at home, and just, uh, just strengthen them, Father, and may they be encouraged uh, somehow by uh, us as well. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so where does it all begin? And I jokingly say, well, we've talked about our justification, so it begins there, but... We've already discussed this forensic justification. It's a single moment, a single judicial verdict that was rendered to us via Christ's death on the cross and the imputation provided. And we really have to think first about our justification and how solid we are in Christ, in God, because of our justification. And I often turn um, to other theological thinkers Uh, to help enlighten us in these um, contexts and in these discussions. And one writer, Mike Horton, says very eloquently, and I think frames it really nicely, in the act of justification, works and grace are totally opposed. However, once our persons are justified, so too our works can be saved in spite of their imperfections. And I think this is the key right here. The faith that receives Christ apart from the works of justification 
also receives Christ for works and sanctification. And so we are united to Christ. Once we are justified, we have been then united with Christ. And just as sure as our justification is with that unification in Christ, so too we can be assured that our sanctification will be because we are united in Christ. Now that doesn't mean that we have an excuse that because we are sanctified that we don't have any responsibility or action to take. We certainly do. But we can be assured that we have unity with Christ, not only in our justification, but in our sanctification. And if that seems confusing or contradictory, we'll unpack that some today. So I want to encourage you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians, because we'll at least be there just for a few moments to talk about how Paul addresses the Corinthian church and some of the verses that he talks about uh, to address the church and to talk about sanctification and justification. So, very simple introduction, but somebody that's in 1 Corinthians, just chapter 1, read just those first two verses. And it may sound simple, but we're going to make a point about it. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those <coughs> who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Thanks. So, <laughs> what did you notice that he called the Corinthian church? Or what did you notice that he said, specifically in verse 2? Sanctified past tense. Past tense. tense. Whoa, wait a minute. This is a church that he's writing to a church that's become immoral and defiled. He's saying to them in the very beginning of the chapter, he's saying, those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Past tense, as Tyler very very astutely pointed out. Now skip down to chapter 6. Skip down, yeah, that's true. Skip down to chapter 6, verse 11. What does Paul say after he talks about the changes that are taking place in the Corinthian church in their lives? Well, how does he note it in chapter 6, verse 11? He says there, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I'm making much of this, but the reason I'm making much of it is because this is in past tense. We were sanctified. So in our unity with Christ, our justification is a punctiliar moment, and our sanctification is a definitive moment. Now that doesn't mean that we have a progressive component. We do, and we'll talk about that. But sanctification here in Scripture and in multiple places in Scripture is being presented as a blessing that's already theirs. It's already happened. And I think that's really encouraging because, we'll get to it, but because we can often think that in many times, again, we're justified, we remember that, and then we're off to the races trying to figure out the rest of our lives 
and trying to run the race, so to speak, and we don't remember that we already have been justified and sanctified, and we have that definitive moment. And it, it gives us a frame of reference. It gives us an encouragement. It gives us something to point back to when the road is weary because, let's face it, it sure is going to be. So we have to make a distinction, I've already said it a couple times, between a definitive and a progressive. And these seem like they might be mutually exclusive, but they're not. So, um, again, if I shared with you guys earlier, we have a little book, David Campbell, Sanctification. This is what our guide is for the class. And I think he really, really helps us frame it in this chapter. And what Campbell says is that this is not to deny that sanctification is ongoing. But it does alert us to the magnitude of what happens at the outset. The distinction can be put like this. Christians are not only becoming holy, they are already holy. So again, we've said that multiple times, but again, driving that point home that we have definitive and progressive natures to our sanctification. And again, the Hebrew and the Greek, the root of the verb that's translated to sanctify, actually is also to separate. So again, we've talked about being separate from our old self, We've talked earlier in the first lesson about being holy, about being separate, being set apart, how many things, including um, Aaron put on garments, particular garments, when he was presiding. Those garments were set apart. Israel was called to be a people of their own, or, or God's people. They were set apart, a nation. So Christ, God often uses this Imagery and this idea of being set apart throughout Scripture. And we'll certainly, certainly understand that one component of our sanctification is moral, moral renewal. I have a hard time saying that. Moral renewal. <laughs> and I believe um, whoever's teaching next week, it may be John or somebody else, but the, the title of that is, um, is it plain sailing? You know, is it just now we're secure in Christ and we just... Um, Throw the sails up, get out, you know, sit on the deck and drink a cup of coffee and we're going to sell our glorification. Is that how it goes? Not really. But we have to frame the context that that's part of it. But equally as important, we have to recognize that at the outset, God's action of electing, separating, and claiming a people for himself. And this is so critically important because it gives us a frame of reference of where it begins and how to think about that, as I said earlier, when the road gets weary, because it will. So God's sanctification separates people, places, and things away from their ordinary association for his own use. So if you turn to Matthew 23, I think this is a really helpful example of, uh, of this imagery and of this use of separating things away from their ordinary association. So this was the woes to the religious leaders. I think there were seven of them in this chapter. But particularly in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 19, if I can have a volunteer read that, we'll understand a little more about this separation, about this setting apart. Verses 16 through 19 of Matthew 23. 
Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So here, Jesus reminds these religious leaders in this particular very succinct section, he reminds them that it's the sanctuary that sanctifies the gold. And it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. These things are set apart. They are different. And so again, multiple times throughout Scripture, things, people, places, Jesus, Jesus himself in John 10, we don't have to go there, but I'll write it up for reference. John 10, 36. Yeah. There, Jesus refers to himself as one whom the Father has sanctified or set apart and sent into the world. Okay. So we have really beaten to the ground definitive sanctification. But I think it's, it's so critically important. So if we can think about what we typically ascribe to sanctification, the process probably goes something like this. And I kind of alluded to this already. For a brief moment, the beginning of our Christian life, the focus was on Christ. Christ's work, his death on the cross, the blessing of justification, received solely through faith alone. That itself is absolutely a gift of God. Then after that, if you guys have ever listened to Alistair Begg, there was a great sermon that he did, and I'm going to use some of his imagery. Then the rest of our life is a matter of striving for more and more and more moral improvement. That you come every Sunday and you're told to pull up your religious socks and go out and have another go at it. And every Sunday you come back in and you're telling to pull up your religious socks. And at one point they're going to say, my socks are far up my leg. I can't get them any higher. <laughs> and the point there is that you can't beat it into somebody's head week to week to week to week without reminding them that they're already there in Christ and already sanctified. And it's the process throughout the continual perpetual life that we will become more and more like Christ. And it's encouraging, not demeaning. Because they're going to be so far up someday if you go by that perspective that you're going to feel like they're waist high. And that's not the way to progress through the Christian life. (laughs) Even Paul Think back to Galatians. Think back to Galatians, um, I think it's chapter 5 maybe, or it might be in chapter 3. What does he say as the corollary to this? He says in Galatians, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being what? Anybody know off the top of their head? Are now you being perfected by the flesh? Think about that. At the outset, if we have been if what this has been begun in our life by the Spirit, are we then ourselves, our flesh, our human flesh, then perfecting us throughout our life? No. It can't be. Again, I turn to Horton because I think Horton is, is so instructive here. And this is a longer quote, but I want to read it again, or I want to read this because I think it really is really, really helpful. So Horton says, We're confident that we are holy and being made holy in Christ simply on the basis of his promise. Not because of what we see visibly in ourselves or in each other. In sanctification, as well as justification, 
God the Father is the giver, the Son is the gift, and the Spirit is the one who creates faith within us through the gospel. So the Holy Spirit is the one that creates that faith in us. In both, Christ is the object, the gospel is the means of its communication from God, and faith is the means of our receiving it from Him. Nor does sanctification require a different act of faith than that exercised in justification. And so that same faith that gives us justification or that allows us to recognize that justification also is the same faith that we can hold to for our sanctification. And again, to to further drive home the point, and I've already sort of alluded to it, how does Paul open up the book of Corinthians? Think about the immorality the strife, the division, the immaturity of that church as you read it and what he's calling them out of. He opens it up and he says that they're saints. You are sanctified. You are saints. He's reminding them. And he definitely, in those letters, he goes on in those letters to give them imperatives. Give them imperatives to follow. What to do. What to ascribe to. But up front, and we should do this continually to ourselves, He reminds them of their status defined by the Gospels and Dickens, defined by our moment of justification, and recalls them to repentance as the only absolute legitimate response to that. And so there is a a general confusion, I think, of religion. I don't think, this is actually, I borrow this again from my course, so I can't take credit for this statement, but when I read this, this is really really impacting the way that I think about sanctification. That the goal of religion in most people's minds is to get people to become something that they're not. That's what most people think. It's a book, or it's a a, 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 a codex of moral things to do, of actions to follow. But in fact, what the scriptures are actually doing is calling to believers to become more and more what they already are in Christ. And that that was so transformative when I thought about that. Because every bit of the imperatives that are in the Scripture that talk about what we should do, walking in the Spirit, walking in the fruits of the Spirit, it's not calling us to become something that we're not. Because if we are believers, it's calling us to become more and more who we already are in Christ. That our, why, that's why our unity, our unification in Christ is so incredibly important. So before we dive into the last piece, which is Romans 6, I just want to open it up. Are there thoughts about that? Because again, a lot of that may be different about how we think about sanctification. But are there any comments or even, even additional <coughs> context that anybody wants to provide? It's very freeing to to understand or to like to think. Okay, well, it's already assured. Doesn't excuse me from doing things or acting in a responsible, moral way as Christ has directed us to. But it's very freeing. Yeah. To know, like, hey, okay, well, this is a sure thing. I may struggle with getting there or fighting the flesh or whatever. Um, 
But what, like you said, the starting point is this is guaranteed, and mm-hmm. Christ will see it to completion. But yeah, again, it doesn't excuse. It's not. It doesn't excuse me from doing things, but um, the definitive progressive type of thing. Right. Absolutely. It's it's really too bad we can't feel it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean. Because it would help. I know it would help me. <laughs> it would help everyone. Yeah. Because we're so programmed to think that everything is transactional, that, that what we do in our life results in something else. Yeah. So that everything that we're doing, by pulling up those religious socks, is going to make us more right in line with God. <clears throat> and that we can absolutely become more like Christ because we are holy. And so... Now we can just pull up our religious socks every single week, walk out, and pull them up again and again because it's all us. It's all the focus back on us. And we get the opportunity. We, we, don't, we get the opportunity. I think that's so transformative to me. We, we are allowed the opportunity to turn that back over to Christ and to trust in Him and His work and the fact that we can go out and give it a go, but knowing that we are going to fail miserably at it. And we're going to succeed better some weeks than we are others. We may have seasons, long seasons, where we are just drudging through the muck and the mire and the water, but we are still unified with Christ in this process. And it may not be fun. (laughs) It may not be fun, but we are unified and solid with, with, with Christ and with God. So finally in Romans 6, this is what I know we've got some time left. But I want to end with Romans 6. And the kind of the focus text here is going to be verses 5 through 14. So if we can have uh, someone that's got Romans 6, verses 5 through 14, can read those. And, you know, as a reminder, Romans 5, you know, sets up this whole idea that we are um, uh, death in Adam. We have death in Adam and life in Christ. And so here we're talking about being dead to sin and alive to God. And what does that mean? So we get to talk about sanctification, really, starting out in Romans 6 and Romans 7. So whoever has Romans 6, 5-14, if you want to read that for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thanks, Danny. So I think, what what does Paul make really, really clear, just even in verse 5? What are the two things that we will experience if we've been united to Christ? There's two things he mentions. I'll give you one, a death. What's the other? Resurrection. Resurrection. So we often think of these 
this future events because we will die and we'll then um, uh, come to the Father and, and ascend into heaven. So we, we often think of these as future events, but I think it's really important to realize that Paul helps us point out that these have also happened. Look at verse, look at verse 11 here, what he says there. And Danny read it. He says there, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So there's already a moment of a past tense to think about here. And so, thinking about verse 6, going back to verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what is Paul referring to in verse 6 when he talks about our old selves? Us without Christ. Us without Christ. Furthermore, if we don't have Christ, what is ruling in our lives? Sin. Sin. That's the clear distinction that Paul is making here, is that prior to Christ, we were, as he says, enslaved to sin. Sin had power. Sin had control. Sin had its rule over our lives. It's why we did the things we did. It's why we thought, said what we did out of our own control because that was the control of sin in our lives. And now because of this union that we have in Christ, I know we didn't read this, but I'll go down and read verses 17 through 19 and also verse 22 because these are really the result, the benefit of that unification that we have with Christ. Things have certainly changed because in verse 17, thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to be the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So we have this radical 180 degree turn of what we are enslaved to, so to speak. What we are, have, what has dominion over our lives. What has control over our lives. It once was sin. Furthermore, verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. Now, I know I said this, I think even went back in lesson one that first week. But here we're now talking about and understanding that difference between definitive and progressive sanctification and what that union with Christ really truly does. And again, I'll refer back to, to, to David Campbell. He says that Romans presents Christ to us as the perfect and complete answer to the problems that our sin has created. Sin is guilt, for example. Jesus is the answer to that. Our first father Adam entailed sin, condemnation, and death on all his descendants. But when by faith we come to be united with Christ, that fatal link is broken. In and through him we enjoy instead the counter-blessings of righteousness of justification and life. So that's why it's so critically important to understand there's a, there's a definitive sanctification. Because if we go back to verses 12 and 13 that Danny read, 
it says, and it gives us a very clear imperative here. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, if you took those, isolated them out, oh boy, (laughs) you would be in for a world of despair if you think that you can leave it up to your own devices to follow that edict. Because that's what I'm talking about pulling up your religious socks every single week. You come in, brothers and sisters, let not the sin therefore reign your mortal body. All right, I'm going to go out and have a go at it. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Because you probably aren't going to do that by the time you hit the door. Well, I know about biblicism. That's you take one verse yeah. and you pound people over the head of the verse. Say, See, I'm right. The Bible says so. Right? It's, it's very common. The Bible says so. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I just ignored the rest of Romans, but exactly. hey, the Bible says so. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you mm-hmm. notice, 20, 19 and 22 say leads to sanctification? Yes. So those verses are pointing to sanctification as a future event. Right. We already always talk about it as a past event. Yep. Here's something as a future event versus other verses that talk about it in the moment. Yes. You're being, you are being sanctified. sanctified. That's right. So sanctification has that past, present, future where yeah. Roman Catholic Church blends justification and sanctification into one thing. Mm-hmm. So your sanctification proves your justification. As you get more sanctified, your justification gets more set in stone, right? Where, if you understand justification happened, then that fear is gone. And But also, you see that happening today in the evangelical church. We forget our history, and we pretend like we're the first people to ever read the Bible. So you have um, the, the second justification coming out right now, uh, and you also have lordship salvation. People preaching lordship salvation, second justification truly knew and understood their church history, this wouldn't happen. But because we're Protestants, we have the right to read the Bible on our own, and you know, and we don't need creeds because, you know, all I need is the Bible, or Biblicism, right? So, uh, all of a sudden we're back to this confusing justification, sanctification, blending them into one thing in the evangelical church, because we don't yeah. remember or care about our history. Absolutely. I was going to say, too, one... Thank you, Tyler. It's amazing. But yeah. also, like, rem- like remembering that, I don't want to call it a timeline, but that reality of sanctification being a past, present, and future. Mm-hmm. Because I think to be charitable to those, like, if, if we're going to, if we're going to, we're going to make, if we're going to push sides, right, to be charitable to the other side, what we, what we fall into danger of is by not wanting to every single week pound people into mm-hmm. pulling up their socks. We uh, walk around the church and see people with no socks. Yeah, don't say anything. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, hey, brother, you just in, in in the most gracious and kind and loving, uh, faithful way I can. I just wanted you to know you're not wearing socks. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I just there's that there's that balance there, and all of those realities of sanctification are important because mm-hmm. without its proper historical context, without its proper biblical context, and without understanding it start to finish. You, you skew either way, mm-hmm. like really hard, right? Mm-hmm. It's so easy to, 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 to completely skew antinomian or to completely Absolutely. skew uh, legalist, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a proper balance and a proper order of those things. Um, and yeah, I think to Tyler's point, the, we're seeing a lot of this in broader evangelicalism, even with John Piper, who is, in the past, a lot of us reform folks really liked and really, you know, uh, bought into, and, and not that he's not a faithful preacher of the word, but he's bought into final justification, which sort of our glorification hinges on 
our justification, and our justification hinges on us progressing in a certain way, sanctified, right? right? So that final justification is proved based on our works instead of the finished work of Christ. And so all that to say, that's why I feel like this class is so important in remembering yeah. all those realities. The, the definitive and the progressive part of sanctification is important. Otherwise, you're operating with, you're, you're building a puzzle that doesn't have all the pieces. Exactly. Absolutely. 100%. It's hard, though, to, um, to see those as not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. The definite, the past, present, future, and I think it's similar to free will. Like there is an element of faith in in saying, like, "Hey, this doesn't make sense to my finite mind," um, but somehow in Scripture I see this past, present, future, and somehow it is sure. But somehow there is some responsibility. Somehow there is some progressive nature to it. Not of my own flesh, but of Christ. But it's it's there. I think there's an element. There has to be an element of faith in. Oh yeah. In understanding <clears throat> that these are not mutually exclusive, right. but they seem mutually exclusive. I think it's very similar to free will to me, where like you you have control, but you don't have control over mm-hmm. your decisions. Well, I, I think it's so true. I mean, every, everyone, you're you're making all these points so saliently clear. It's so incredibly important to, to do this and frame these contexts because clearly, as you said, there are edicts in Scripture that we should follow, that we should call ourselves to, that we should feel convicted over when we can't do those things, that the Scriptures will convict us. That's, that's all right and good and appropriate, but it has to be done from the right context from the right framing, because otherwise you're going to flip your head all around. You're going to get yourself all tripped up, and am I really good with Christ? Am I really doing fruit? Like, am I, am I, am I, am I? And it'll all turn back to yourself at some point, where we need to focus back on the works of Christ and the the authority of Christ in our lives. You know, even the analogy that we talk about in John, where we talk about bearing fruit, you first off, he actually says in there that you are already part of the vine. So he already establishes your relationship together, that union with Christ, so you can then bear fruit of the vine. There's a clear distinction, but often it gets misappropriated that you have to look for the results of it in order to secure yourself back to the vine. And it's all, again, this, and it, it's such a mysterious, inextricable link. And it's difficult, and it's challenging, but I think that's why we have to remind ourselves perpetually that we are linked, that we are good, because there's this past, this present, and this future component. And what I wrote up here is what Tyler was alluding to, and I think I might have even said this the very first week, but from a Rome perspective, we are justified because we're sanctified. But we flip that around, that in Protestants, we are sanctified because we are justified. So again, using that forensic, judicial verdict of justification as that moment by which then everything else flows. You're dead in your sins. Yeah. So how can a dead man rise up and see Jesus, right? So if you see justification as a judicial act, you are declared righteous. You are dead. So there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So your sanctification can't shore up and make your justification better. Right. Because you were dead when you were justified. Yourself, right. Right. And so that, there's that, oh, I had to Google, I forget, the passe non quorum, non passe yeah. non quorum. So that the ability to not sin and 
you do not have the ability to not sin. So that the non-posse, non-pecorum is, before you're a believer, you don't have the ability not to sin. Right? You're mm-hmm. a slave to righteousness. So free will, not really. You're a slave to righteousness. I mean, so a slave to sin, sorry. Then when you're saved, you're a slave to righteousness, you have the ability to not sin. Mm-hmm. That, that's sanctification. Exactly. So it's not that you won't sin. And, and again, the Bible says can take this out of context and make it seem like uh, you're a holiness movement. You've got to be right. perfect, right? Exactly. You have the ability to never sin ever again. No, it's just that you were a slave to sin. You couldn't not sin. Mm-hmm. Now under sanctification, you have the ability to not, to not sin. sin. But none of that has anything to do with your justification because you were dead when that happened. That is a judicial act of God. Right. Absolutely. So in other words, you can't have future justification either. That's bunk. That's completely ridiculous. <laughs> right. Exactly. You were justified. Right. Notice there's no being justified in the Bible. Yeah, exactly. You, you are being sanctified. There's no you are being justified. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 100%. And it's so important. And the point of today's was to understand where it all begins. Because, as I mentioned, in future weeks we're going to talk about those moral implications or those things, those edicts in Scripture that do talk about how we can become sanctified, how we can apply these Scriptures. And the application that we can think about from today are exactly what it said in verses 12 and 13, which is the whole life of sanctification. Let not sin, therefore reign in your moral body. But if I were to just you know, open up and close with that, it would just pour despair on everyone if we don't realize that we have this justification, this sanctification, and we're solid. And it's just, that's why it's so free. I think, I think that's the, the key word is that it's freeing to understand these things. And thanks, Beth, Jeremy, for bringing that up. Jeremy, something that helped me when <clears throat> I was coming out of uh, my, that I was so good, no wonder he died to save me. That's who I was. Well, one of the things that encouraged me so much was the scripture that says if you abide He's the vine, we're the branches. If we abide in the vine, then we have fruit. And at that point, we lived in Fitzgerald, Georgia, and we had great vines. And it was so apparent to me that here was this big thing in the ground, and then here went all of these branches out, and sure enough, every year, little fruit just (coughs) popped out. And I never once heard any of those branches going, "Mm." Mm, I got yep. a bear fruit. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened because they abide in the the branch. Yeah. And, and the, so when I think about it, even when I feel like, oh my goodness, I'm not resting. I'm I'm grunting here. You yeah. know, it's not up to me, Lord. It's up to you. Yeah. And I give up, and I'm going back to. I want to just abide in you because that's a lot more fun. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so true. And it, it's really helpful. I mean, if you look at the verse, this is the verse I was referring to earlier, and thank you for bringing that up again. Because he says in verse 3 of John 15, Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Already, <laughs> past tense. So abide in me and I in you. And then we talk about the fruit of the vine, as you just said. It wasn't just straight there trying to make its fruit. Very clear. One thing I want to ask before, before we close, uh, Danny brought it up, but I want to make sure everyone understands antinomianism. Make sure that you guys understand what that word means. What, Jeremy? What did you say? Antinomianism. We'll do it again. 
Yes. Okay. So, and so there's two things that, that there's kind of two branches that you can look at, not to use that same analogy, but two different things. You could, you could go one, one way in a stark difference, and you could go to antinomianism, and we'll break it down, and we could go to legalism. Well, legalism is the easy one. Legalism is being very rigid, very focused on the legal application of what we see here, and that if you don't do it, then you're ex-nade. Like, that's very, very legalistic. But antinomianism, if you break it down, anti means against. Nomos is the word for law. So anti-law. So at that point, your whole perception and your whole attitude is, all right, we're set free, don't have to worry about anything, just jolly along, right along. And that's what I was referring to earlier, just throwing up the cell on the sailboat, just sitting there with a, with a cup of coffee and just letting it all happen, avoiding every edict in Scripture, thinking that you don't have to do anything because you're good in Christ. And so those are the two radical sides of it, antinomianism and legalism, and both of them have their own errors. And you should be right in the middle of uh, understanding that, yes, we are set free. And again, it's this really mysterious and extrapolable link that's difficult to wrap your mind around. But that we shouldn't be so legalistic, we should understand the edicts of Scripture and abide by them and follow them, but we're not totally against law because we know that we are justified. So, again, it's a, it's a confusing relationship, but either one of these are errors in their own right. And I think we could all fall into one or the other at all parts of our life, and I think that's just the way that we can encourage ourselves as a group and a community of believers is to bring ourselves back to the middle. So antinomianism against law, antinomos. I think so, even to just to add to that, just something I've thought about a lot is, <clears throat> like to, to Tyler's point, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts recently about biblicism, funny enough, and how that, its impacts of that. But... If you think about it, like a lot of times, because we're human, we tend to think of things in terms of like, well, I think this, and then somebody has a counter. So it's always like this because of this. It's always this because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, well, you got legalism, well, then now they're the answer. So there are always these mirror aspects. We're always trying to sort of dichotomize things. That's how we understand them. We understand things based on the relationship to each other. And what that creates sometimes is that well, it either has to be this or it has yeah. to be that. Mm-hmm. And so there's this messy sort of messy middle, messy balance that's hard to strike because antinomianism is when you focus too much on this and you don't keep this reality yep. in check. Right? Absolutely. And so we, we dichotomize these things. You have to understand. And you might think, well, how do they, like, these seem mutually exclusive. Why are they not mutually exclusive? And this sounds like a cop-out answer, but it's like the scripture you read is one of my comfort verses. I'm speaking to you, to you this way because of your natural limitations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are going to be times when this is, it's sort of beyond our, our finite understanding, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't say that to, to, to shut down the thinking of it or pondering on it, but just that there are going to be times when, how in the world is sanctification de- definitive and progressive? Yeah. Well, it just is. It just is. That's and right. Because of my natural limitations, <laughs> I, I will have to just take that for what it. You know what I mean? That's right. So, yeah. Um, that's why you have to take comfort and justification. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The, the yeah. preacher, the standard preacher, is afraid that if he focuses too much on justification, that his congregation is going to go buck wild, and he's going to find all of his uh, all the men at the adult club on Monday <laughs> night. So he better not talk about justification too much, or else. 
The whole congregation is going to hell in a handbasket. That's right. right. But it, as you struggle through these things, don't because the typical thing to do is you weaken justification and get people to behave. Mm -hmm. That's the easiest way to do it. Put doubt in their justification; they're going to get on board. Yep. Right. The difference is if you have comfort and justification, you can then work through the sanctification. That's right. So not become antinomian or legalist, but take comfort while you don't understand these things, while you figure these things out. Because I am certain that I'm declared righteous in Christ and I can't take that away. That's right. Jesus says, no one can take them out of my hand, right? Right. If Jesus said that, that means you can't take yourself out of his hand. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are at the hour. Any other thoughts from the group? Any other closing comments? I hope this was helpful because... You know, we're going to talk more throughout the coming lessons about the progressive peace. But we really have to outline the definitive peace and the importance of that before we can set out. And I think even one of the chapters goes back to uh, John Owen and, uh, you know, pulling out the knife, mortifying the sin. Like, all of those things are good and appropriate. We've got to remember all of this up front. Otherwise, we're going to get way wrapped around in our heads. So, anything else? I've always liked the way Paul put it in... Romans where he said therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace with God through yeah. our Lord Jesus Christ yeah. through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand Amen. yep Amen so, that's right all the progressive sanctification is taking place as we're already standing surrounded mm -hmm. by God's grace and that's, mm -hmm. a, that's always been a good picture for my mind for sure. to think about. Um, Absolutely. That's a wonderful verse to reflect on and really just to, to end the discussion on because, yeah, we have it. Tyler, you want to pray for us today as we end? Thanks. Lord, thank you that we don't have to save ourselves. Mm. Thank you for opening our eyes and letting us see the truth of our own sin and the truth of your Son. Thank you that you gave them to us as a free gift. Thank you that you gave us the knowledge and wisdom. It's not our own understanding, but it's purely a gift from you. I pray that we will take rest in that. And because of that knowledge, we will desire to serve you, to mortify sin in our flesh, mm -hmm. to share the word with those around us who don't know you, to be a shining light, not to uh, change people's moral behavior, but more importantly, to show people their need for Christ. Mm -hmm. Give us boldness to share that in the dying world, Lord. Thank you that we also take comfort that you have a plan and that uh, there is an end to all this and there is glorification. So even if things seem weird and messy, we know that in the end you have it all figured out. I pray we'll rest in that. I pray we'll be with Ryan as he preaches today. In Jesus' name.